Today, we're going to explore a well-known passage out of John's Gospel, John chapter 8. Before we get into the text, I'm going to take a moment and pray over the word, as I like to do every time I teach, and I ask you to pray with me. While we're praying, feel free to open your Bibles to the beginning of John's 8th chapter. Go with me in prayer, if you will. Heavenly Father, thank you for delivering me here, both physically in the safe travel that I took, Father, but also spiritually in the way you called and gifted a man who had no qualifications, but who was willing to follow. And you're using me, Father, to your glory, and I thank you for that. And I thank you most of all because each time you do something like this, there's yet someone else in seeing it who hears and feels the same call. And so I ask, Father, that as we open your word tonight, we study and we learn and we apply ourselves, that we will also, Father, be asking the question of what will we do with what we learn and how is it you call us to serve you? We praise you. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen. I want to address the side issue, I guess you might say, related to these verses before we actually open them up and exposit the story that John gives us here. And, and what I mean by that is there's actually a matter of some controversy surrounding these opening verses, verses one through eleven of chapter eight. Some of you may know of this controversy, but I want to bring it to your attention because I think there's an important lesson here to be learned in just the fact that it is controversial. Many scholars have concluded that John didn't write this, that the passage here regarding the adulterous woman, it actually begins at the last verse of chapter seven, 753, going all the way to chapter eight, verse 11. That passage is believed to have been written by somebody other than John, and it was added to John's gospel uh, several centuries after the canon of Scripture was actually formed. Your modern English translation probably acknowledges this very concern, because if you'll notice, you probably have brackets around this section, beginning in verse 53 and going all the way to chapter 8, verse 11. Those brackets are translators' way of telling you and telling me that there is some concern about the origin of these verses. There are several clues that tell us this passage was probably not written by John. First, the vast majority of the original manuscripts that we have of John's writing, of of what John wrote and of what scribes later transcribed, they lack this passage altogether. In fact, this passage did not appear in any copy of John's gospel until the 6th century, which is 200 years or so after the canon was formed. That's long after we had already established what scripture was. Also, the style of writing in this passage, it's very different from John's normal style. In fact, it reads a lot more like one of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark and Luke. And its placement at this point in John's gospel, it's really very awkward. If you read chapter seven, verse 52, the verse right before this section, and then jump immediately to chapter eight, verse 12, it's seamless. The narrative flows absolutely seamlessly. It's pretty clear that this stuff was stuck in the middle of what was already there. So the best conclusion scholars draw, and frankly, the the conclusion I share, is that this is not written by John. Now, should we still study it? Well, absolutely. Because I'm not saying this is not inspired scripture. And I'm not saying it didn't happen. Most scholars believe, and I believe as well, that there is no reason to doubt the authenticity of this story or the inspired nature of it. Personally, I think Luke wrote it. 
I think he had this in his gospel originally, and a scribe somewhere in the 6th century moved it from Luke's gospel into John's gospel. The writing style here matches Luke very closely. It features a woman in distress, which is one of Luke's classic themes throughout his gospel. And if you were to take this particular event, the adulterous woman, and move it into chapter 22 of Luke's gospel, it fits nicely. Same context, same place, same location. A lot of the same events, it just would be a very nice and easy place to see that fit. So why would a a scribe or a copyist move this from Luke's gospel to John's gospel, if in fact that's what's happened? Well, in a word, convenience. You see, when the biblical canon was set in the fourth century, that's when they added chapter and verse numbers to scripture. And when they did that, most of John's chapters ended up being fairly short. But Luke's chapters, as you may know, they can run on a long, long way. In fact, if you were to add back these verses to chapter 22 of Luke, for example, you'd have almost 100 verses in that one chapter. Knowing how the scrolls of that day worked, the parchment paper that they used to write on, they came in standard lengths. And scribes did not like to take a chapter of scripture and divide it across two scrolls. They preferred to keep chapters together. So some guy got to the point copying out Luke's gospel when he ran out of paper. But he didn't want to dismiss the material. He wanted to retain the material. So he found a shorter chapter on another parchment and put this in. Now, I reviewed all this background, not because I wanted you to have any less confidence in the authenticity of Scripture. Quite the opposite. I gave you that background because I want you to have greater confidence in the authenticity of Scripture. And here's what I mean. There are many unbelievers, critics, who, because they lack the Spirit of God, they lack the ability to understand Scripture. They will take a textual issue, like the one we're seeing here in John, and they will use that as supposed evidence for why you cannot trust the Bible, why you cannot believe that what we have written here is trustworthy. They scoff at the notion that we can place our trust in something like the Bible because they claim that these changes, these small little things that you can find in the text of Scripture, means it cannot be considered authentic. And so they say, how can you trust it? The truth, though, is very much the opposite. In reality, these idiosyncrasies, wherever they appear, they are proof of how much you can trust what you're looking at. The Lord here has worked over the centuries to preserve a tremendous number of manuscript copies of the original texts. There is nothing in antiquity to compare to the Bible in terms of the authenticity and the number of original surviving manuscripts. For example, we have over 24,000, 24,000 of the original scribe-produced manuscripts for New Testament works, for just the New Testament. Let me give you some comparisons. The ancient Greek writer Homer We have 643 copies of manuscripts from his writing. We have 49 copies of everything Aristotle ever wrote. And Plato, in all the world today, there are only seven surviving manuscripts from Plato's ancient works. So by comparison, Scripture is by far better documented in terms of what the original texts have. And what's fascinating to me, though, is that the world of unbelievers, particularly scholars and universities and the like, they waste no time debating whether or not these Greek authors can be studied and whether their writings have any value. They don't sit around and say, well, we only have seven copies of Plato. There's no reason to study his stuff. They devote whole careers to studying that stuff. We have 24,000 copies of manuscripts for the New Testament. 
with a few easily found and identified copyist errors, and suddenly the whole thing is worthless? No, folks, the very reason I can stand here with you tonight, and we can look at this text, and we can see the potential that something has been moved between two different authors, the reason we can do that is because we have surviving manuscripts that don't have this material in it prior to the 6th century. That's how we're able to discern this. And yet, we still have the value of it because we know it's inspired. Secondly, every believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you believe and have accepted Christ as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit living in you right now. Jesus called him the helper who would come and explain all things to us from Scripture. Then you know as well as I do that there is a testimony of authenticity that comes from the Spirit testifying to your spirit that what you read is true. And it's an experience you cannot explain and you cannot replicate in the life of an unbeliever. And folks, as you read this text with me tonight, as we study it, I am convinced that the Holy Spirit will be teaching you as he did me. And you'll see in the word tonight, this is true. This is accurate. This is inspired. And the fact that a copyist moved it around is just human nature. But it doesn't detract from God's word. And when you are in the world and you are hearing those who would come to the Bible and call it into question and perhaps try to steal your confidence from what you have read in the word of God. I want you to remember that their reasons for coming and making those critiques have nothing to do with whether or not the word is trustworthy. They're not protesting the inaccuracy of scripture. They are rebelling against the truth of God's word, whether they know it or not. They are eagerly seeking to discredit the word of God simply because its truth pierces their heart. As it's intended to do. And that reality, friends, proves its authenticity better than anything else I could give you. So let's continue to study it and preach it in the confidence that the Spirit gives us, knowing that even among those critics, some of them may be a Saul who will one day be a Paul. And the Bible will be the means to bring them to faith just as it does for everyone else. Let's go straight into the passage. I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. I'll read straight through to verse 11. If you have your Bible open with you, as I hope you do, let's let's read it together. Verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Now, they were saying this, testing him so that they may have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on. Sin no more. At the beginning of this passage, I want to set the scene here for you because it's so important to understanding what's really happening. You find Jesus, he's in the temple teaching. Now, if I'm right, and this came out of Luke 22, 
Then this scene is actually about three days before he's crucified. He's in the temple in the week of Passover, teaching to huge crowds because the city itself always swelled with millions of Jews in the week of Passover. And he's using the daytime hours of each of these days during this week to teach in the temple. But it's also become the, the place where Pharisees, scribes, lawyers, all these who are aligned against him would congregate and look for opportunity to embarrass Jesus or to trap him in some way. You might recognize this pattern from really the entire length of the Gospels. Jesus teaching, lawyers, scribes, and other Jewish leaders conspiring, and traps being laid, and, and so on. And these traps were very simple. They would contrive a situation in which there was a dilemma from which they see no escape. So that no matter what choice Jesus might make in responding to their challenge, he would come out either looking foolish in front of the crowds, or he would cross some line, either a line of Jewish law or Roman law, and in doing that, they'd have grounds to accuse him and bring charges against him. Now, on this occasion, we're told they bring a woman accused of adultery and they set her in front of Jesus as he taught the crowd. Now, they've chosen this moment for a very good reason. They brought this woman here in this moment because in this large open court area of the temple. And if you've seen maybe pictures or drawings of what the temple looked like back in this day, Herod's temple, there was this large outer court that dominated the temple and it could hold, if necessary, Probably 100,000 people crammed in there. It's huge. He's somewhere in this area standing. And it's likely that what's around him is a huge sea of people, most of them seated on the ground listening to him teach. Now, in this moment, they bring this trap because whatever happens, whatever Jesus does during this confrontation, it's going to be witnessed by literally hundreds, if not thousands of people. So the Pharisees have chosen this setting simply because it has the potential to inflict maximum damage with whatever Jesus might do out of this trap. But there's a second reason why they bring this trap here. The temple grounds was probably the one place in Jewish society where the Jewish people had some latitude to exercise their own law free from Roman interference. You probably know that in the day that Jesus walked the earth, the nation of Israel was an occupied nation. They were under Roman rule and Roman oppression. They could not do what they wished to do. And even though they had a law of their own, the law of Moses, they were not permitted to exercise that law, especially in criminal matters. They were always beholden to the Romans and their laws. And only if the Romans permitted the Jewish authorities to carry out an execution, for example, or a criminal court, only if the Romans allowed them to do that could the Jews do it. But here in this temple ground, in the temple courtyard, Romans rarely ventured because it always upset the Jews. There was very little Roman presence. So a Jewish leader under these circumstances would have had greater freedom in order to perhaps carry out even an execution before the Romans could hear about it and get engaged and try to put an end to it. So against this backdrop, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him to render judgment in the case of this adulterous woman. They claim that she was caught in the very act of adultery, and they say that this act of adultery requires the punishment of execution of death under the law by stoning. Now, here's what Jesus is facing. If he agrees with their assessment that she's an adulteress and that adultery deserves death, then the very fact that they chose this time and place to do it means it implies 
that he could expect the Pharisees to run right then and there, find a crowd and start stoning her. He'll be seen to have blood on his hands because, in effect, he will be the one signing her death warrant. And that's what the Pharisees are hoping he will do. That's one side of the trap. But the other side of the trap is if he doesn't agree with them and tries to argue the case, he'll look foolish trying to find some way to avoid what the law requires, which is that adultery lead to death. Now, before we look at his response, we need to recognize something about what the Pharisees are doing here with the law itself, because they're playing fast and loose with it. The law itself, just to take one verse, for example, in Leviticus 20, verse 10, you find a law concerning adultery, and this is how it reads. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So the penalty for adultery was death. But did you notice it was death for both the man and the woman? Not just one. So it leads us to the natural question, where's the man? I mean, they said they caught him in the act, right? Well, last time I checked, that's going to mean there's two people there. And if this offense was so serious for these Pharisees, that they were so bothered by it, that it caused them to grab this woman and drag her all the way up to the Temple Mount, just so they could find Jesus and plop her down in front of him, well, then it only stands to reason that the man's offense would have been equally offensive and they would have done the same for him, right? The fact that there's only the woman screams of a trap, of manipulation, of hypocrisy. The reason the Pharisees have done this, of course, is they want a pawn, but they want a sympathetic-looking pawn. They want the weaker of the two, the one that will engender the most sympathy from the crowd. She's probably a well-known harlot, a woman that everyone knew did this kind of thing, so that when they needed her, they knew where to find her. And they knew how to find her in the act so that they'd have an accusation that would stand up. It's obvious, not only to us in the text, but I would argue it was also obvious to the crowd in the moment that this is contrived. It's a setup. It's being done for effect. And the whole point is to bring down Jesus. Now, the second thing the Pharisees did wrong, or the second thing we should note, is they actually misstated the law. The law says adulterers in Israel deserve death, but the law doesn't say how they're to be killed, did it? And in fact, historically, there were a variety of methods used for executions when it came to adultery. For the longest time, it was strangling in Israel. Then under the time of Ezekiel, it became first a stripping of the offenders until they were naked in public, which was very shameful in that day. Then they would be stoned, and then their bodies would be cut up with a sword. Gruesome, I know. But the point is that adultery does not necessarily require stoning. In fact, under the law, if the adulteress was the daughter of a priest, she was burned to death. Now, why are these penalties so severe? It's simply because the crime of adultery, particularly that of the daughter of a priest, put at risk the pure bloodline of the tribes of Israel and of the priesthood, particularly. And that's not something God was willing to tolerate. So now by Jesus' day, stoning was again one of the ways in which an adulteress could be put to death. But it would only have been done in an official capacity. The Jewish legal system has due process, just like our modern system does. You couldn't just grab someone off the street and say, hey, I see you committed adultery. Let me just drag you over here and throw a stone at you. 
No, that would be murder. They went before a judge. There was a trial. There had to be witnesses. There had to be a verdict. There was a sentencing. And in the case of stoning, the first stone had to be thrown by one of the witnesses. That's the legal process. You couldn't vary that. What the Pharisees are trying to do here is vigilante justice. They want Jesus to condemn her. They want to then turn and stone her immediately and have the whole thing be an opportunity to accuse Jesus. They can accuse him of being unfair, of not following due process of law. Then they can turn around and accuse him to the Romans and say, he executed without your authority. They have a lot of angles here in which they can discredit Jesus. So how does he get out of this? What's he going to do? Well, in verse 6, we're told what he does. Nothing. He doesn't say a word. He stoops down and he begins to write on the ground. Now, if we're going to really appreciate what's going on here, I need you to start to imagine yourself as if you were one of the crowd. Because I think it's from their vantage point that you begin to understand what's really happening here. So go back to that scene I painted for you a few minutes ago. You're in the temple court. You're seated on the ground because there's so many people. If you stand up, you'll block someone's view. And there's a sea of these people, sort of in a circle with Jesus standing in the middle. That would have been the most likely way something like this would have been done. And let's say you're 30 or 40 feet away. You see Jesus standing. And out of the corner of your eye, you see these Pharisees walking in a huff, dragging this poor, disheveled woman behind them. And they work their way through the crowd the whole time. Eventually, they end up standing right in front of Jesus. And you're fascinated. You don't know why they're there, but you know who they are. And you know these are not friends of Jesus. You hear their accusations. You hear their challenge to Jesus. Now you're sitting there waiting to find out what Jesus will do in response to this trap. Because you can sense it's a trap. But you want him to win. You know, one of the things you'll notice as you study through the Gospels is the crowds were always on Jesus' side because they hated the Pharisees. Sanctimonious, pious, hypocritical, self-righteous. And these guys, these guys made sure that the law was enforced upon everybody else like, like a weight on their shoulders. So at any opportunity, someone who might show them up, They love that fellow, whoever it would be. And Jesus has earned a following in large part because he's challenged the authority of these hypocrites. And so here you are seated on the ground. I want you to fix that view in your mind. You're watching from a distance. And as you reach that climactic moment and there's that that challenge from the Pharisees, you're waiting and Jesus disappears. When he stoops down to the ground, you don't see him anymore. He's too low. You wonder what he's doing. You're not sure what comes next. But what you do see are the Pharisees standing alone with the woman. What Jesus has just done here is he's removed himself from the conversation, both verbally and visually. He's not there anymore. He's refusing. He's refraining from judging this woman. And all he's left is this picture of men standing in judgment over the woman. But he's not one of them. Now, while he stoops down, we're told Jesus occupies himself with something a child might do, a child that's bored, standing in line at an amusement ride or something. He goes down to the ground, he starts to draw or write in some fashion. How would that happen today, by the way? If we were in a similar situation and you wanted to demonstrate that you were disengaging from a conversation, that you did not want to be a part of that conversation, what do we do today, folks? Look, I got a new iPhone. That screams volumes, doesn't it? I'm not talking anymore. I'm I'm checked out. So today we'd be doing Angry Birds or we'd be 
answer an email or doing something, right? So when you see Jesus disappear, drop to the ground, leaving only these chagrined Pharisees standing in the middle of this, of this crowd looking foolish, you get the point, right? I'm not playing the game. And they're made uncomfortable. The Pharisees were told are made uncomfortable by this maneuver because it's actually quite disrespectful to them in some sense. And so the text tells us they persisted, which is meaning they continued to press him to give them some kind of answer, even while he stooped down. And so at this point, the writer tells us Jesus straightens back up. He kind of pops up back into view for just a moment. And he presents them with this simple but remarkable test for how they are to proceed if they are going to judge this woman. He says that the one among them who has no sin has to cast the first stone. And then he pops back down. He's back on the ground again. If it wasn't for the fact that the stakes are so high and this woman's life is on the line, it would be comical. You might even be chuckling a little as you watch this because you know what's making the, the Pharisees look so foolish. And he's actually turned the tables on them now. They're the ones now who are in a trap. Now, before I go any further and explain that, I'm sure you're expecting sooner or later, I'm going to address one of the most hotly debated questions. What did he write on the ground? Isn't that the thing that we all want to know? Well, before we start making any guesses, let's acknowledge an important fact. The gospel writer himself did not think it was important to include this detail in his account. He gives no attention to it whatsoever. And therefore, if that detail were important to an understanding of the story, wouldn't we expect the writer to have included it as a detail in the story? And since he didn't, may I suggest that we look elsewhere to find the significance in this story? The second thing we should point out is any suggestion of what he wrote will be guesswork, pure guesswork. It may make for an entertaining exercise, but what does such speculation really profit us? As Bible students, when you get right down to it, if it's not important to the story, is it something we should spend our time on? I think it's a good illustration, this whole question of what did he write? I think that's a good illustration of how pointless speculation over God's word can actually do us harm in that it leads us away from the main thought and away from the main story and what is really trying to be taught and toward things that have no benefit no matter what we do with it. Paul actually alludes to this problem in a letter he wrote to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's speaking about what can bring discord to a church, teaching Timothy as a pastor how to avoid these things. He says this, he said, the person who would engage in these kinds of activities is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, Evil suspicions. Paul's outlining the worst case, really. But what he's saying, I think, is relevant to this passage. He's saying when you make the non points the main point, then you're setting aside the main point. And personally, folks, I don't think he wrote anything of any significance at all. He may have been drawing pictures. I don't think that has any relevance whatsoever to what's happening in the story. Its entire purpose, the only reason it exists, the only reason it happened, is so that he could communicate visually to both the Pharisees and to the crowd that he's checked out, that he's not participating, that he's distracting himself so as to make clear, I'm not going to judge this woman. 
And if there had been iPhones in that day, I'm guessing he would have pulled his iPhone out. And then we'd all be talking about what did he do on his iPhone? What app did he open up? And the true point of the story, if it's not the writing on the ground, the true point of the story is in verse 7. Look at verse 7. At the moment he straightens back up, at the moment he voluntarily reinserts himself into the conversation, he gives this compelling requirement for who could judge this woman. He says only those without sin can render judgment against her. You notice he doesn't deny the accusation. He doesn't suggest she's not guilty. He doesn't insist that that because this is a trap, that somehow she's not culpable. Undoubtedly, she was an adulteress. Undoubtedly, she was caught in the act. I mean, these Pharisees, they're hypocritical, but they're good. They're good at this kind of stuff. They would have dotted their I's and crossed their T's. It's not like they would have made this whole thing up. That would have been too easy for someone to challenge. You can bet that their accusations were accurate, even if the situation was contrived. Nevertheless, Jesus' response is such. He says, I am going to set before you an impossible standard that you have to meet if you're going to dare render judgment against this woman. Sinlessness is an impossible standard. So why did he raise the bar so high? Why is he making that the standard in this woman's case? Well, the reason is simple, but it's not obvious. The Pharisees in this day were the legal authorities of Israel. When it came to Jewish law, these were the Supreme Court judges, the federal judges, the prosecutors. These were the men who had the legal authority to judge people according to the law of Moses. You see that elsewhere in the Gospels in which uh, Jesus says, do as these men do, but do not be like them. He was reflecting the fact that they had real authority in the nation of Israel and you could not just ignore it. But you have to remember, when they came to Jesus in this moment, according to Jewish tradition and Jewish law, when they came to him and they said, render judgment according to this woman, according to her case, that would be like, in modern terms, the judge of one court sending the case to another judge. At the point that a judge does that, they lose their authority over that case, and the new judge now assumes that authority. So under Jewish law and tradition, what they just did in a very public setting They forego their rights to judge, and they put all of that on Jesus, voluntarily. They made him the judge. But Jesus refuses to judge the woman. One thing you have to remember about Jesus is he's not an ordinary rabbi, right? He's the Lord. He's God incarnate. He is the judge of all creation for all eternity. When Jesus renders a judgment concerning sin, He is rendering an eternal judgment. He can do no less. So if Jesus were to render a judgment in this moment concerning this woman's sin, he would be rendering an eternal judgment on her soul. Which is a very different proposition than the one the Pharisees were able to do. They could render a judgment over her life on earth and over her body, but they had no judgment over her soul. Jesus is the judge of her soul. And when the Pharisees handed the judgment of this woman to Jesus... That was the situation Jesus found himself in. As Paul declares concerning Jesus in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, speaking about God's mercy to us in this day, Paul says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which the father will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. That is Christ. 
having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul says that though in the current times of ignorance, God is overlooking our sin. He has appointed a day in the future, fixing a day. There will be judgment on that day and it will take place at the hands of the one the father has appointed. That is Christ. And Jesus has received his authority from the father to be the judge of all creation. But he's not going to rush that day even one minute. He is not going to act as judge until the father is ready for him to judge on a day that is fixed. Paul says Jesus explains the same thing just a few verses later in the same chapter of John. Look at John eight fifteen, just down the page. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, you judge according to the flesh. Notice that you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it. But I am the father who sent me. You see what Jesus is saying? You can only judge so far. I have the eternal judgment, but I'm not acting in that role right now. Simply put, the Pharisees have asked Jesus to do something that Jesus cannot do. And that is act as our judge. Not yet. They ask him to be this woman's judge. But Jesus says, I came to earth not to render judgment for sin, but to offer salvation to sinners. And had he elected to bring his judgment in this moment, that woman couldn't have stood against that judgment. There had not yet been an atoning work of Christ on the cross. There had not yet been blood poured out to save her from that sin. Had he judged her here and now, she's in hell. And by the way, so would every other person. But in mercy, really the the supreme example of God's mercy, he sends his son into the world with a mission that precludes him from judging. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus himself said it later in chapter 12 of John. He says, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But Paul has already told us that time of mercy That time of refraining from judgment will eventually end. And on a day God has fixed in the future, Christ will return as judge. Fortunately for this woman and for us, that day has not yet arrived. And so in the meantime, Jesus cannot pass judgment, not even in this earthly sense. But he was given the role, right? The Pharisees handed him this case. Now what's he going to do with it? Since he has refused to act as judge, he pops back up and he says, all right, I'm handing the case back to you now. I'm returning the judgment to you. But because you gave it to me, I have the authority to define the terms of the judgment. I'm going to set a condition on which you will judge this woman. He says you must be sinless. Now, remember, Jesus himself earned the right to be judge of creation because he came to earth as the new Adam, lived a sinless life, unlike Adam. And having obeyed his father perfectly, went to death for a death he did not deserve, making him uniquely and solely qualified as judge of the earth. But what made him qualified? His sinlessness. The fact that he had nothing to be judged himself makes him qualified to judge everything else. And therefore, if these men are going to stand in his place as judge over this woman, if they're going to now substitute for him, He says, "Okay, but you have to meet the same test that I met. And he, without sin, will be the first to throw a stone at this woman. 
You know, sinlessness is not ordinarily a requirement from God in order for men to judge one another under the law, right? If that were the requirement, we'd have no judges. No, it's in the case here because of the way the Pharisees elected to delegate their authority to Jesus and he in turn returned it to them. That's why he added this condition, because he is saying, in effect, here's what the real judge of creation will be able to do. He will be able to judge all people against all things because he himself will be sinless and have nothing to be judged for. You want to play in that role? Here you go. And of course, as the wiser of those in that group, the older, heard those words and recognized they were now in the trap, they began to fall away. Because if they had chosen to stone her after he gave them that condition, they would have been mocked and maybe even charged with blasphemy for claiming to be sinless. They couldn't do that. And they're in this public setting. The very public setting they thought would help them in their trap of Jesus is now actually working against them because they can't escape their situation. On the other hand, they can't ignore his condition either. They cannot say to the crowd, well, you know what? We don't care what he says. We're going to judge her in the old fashioned way. Who cares about this sinless requirement? We're just going to ignore that. They couldn't do that. And the reason they couldn't do that is because in that very public setting, they transferred their authority to him. And when he transferred it back, he had every right to put a condition on it. So the Pharisees are trapped. Either they throw a stone and suffer what comes from that, or they walk away. And of course, they walk away. Now, once more, I want you to be seated in this crowd. I want you to be staring at this scene. You watch these men walking away. Where's Jesus? Well, Scripture says he's still on the ground, at least initially. What's left then? Just a woman. One woman standing by herself, and now, visually, there's no one standing in judgment over her. No one. Jesus stands up, as we're told at that point, to speak to her. He says, where are your accusers? Who's judging you? She says, no one. And he says, well, I don't judge you either. But then he adds, very importantly, go and sin no more. That's the same message the Savior is giving to us today from the text before us. If you are a believer, if you placed your trust in Christ for your salvation, then you need to know right here and now, no one stands in judgment over you. No man, no woman, not the enemy, not even your Lord. No man in the world judges you if you believe and have accepted in his sacrifice. And I'm not speaking in terms of earthly laws. We know we have judges there, and rightly so. I'm speaking spiritually. You have no judge. No one is qualified to render the judgment according to God's standard. They would have to be sinless to take the place of Christ. And neither is Jesus passing judgment on you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you have yet to know Christ as your Savior, and there's always the possibility that in any crowd, somebody may still be wondering, what is this whole Christianity thing about? Well, you'll be pleased to know that this time in which God is overlooking ignorance is still available. We're still waiting for that future fixed day in which Jesus will act as judge. So, if you will, the window is still open. You may have ignored his sayings or his commandments, as Jesus said in chapter 12. You may have even spoken a word against Jesus. You may have even blasphemed his name. But he tells us that those things will be forgiven. 
that by grace and our faith in him, that he will remove all judgment. So if you've never placed your trust in Christ, you still have time and opportunity. May I suggest this is a good time? Your sins will not be held against you in the day of judgment if you accept that gift of mercy, the one the Lord offers. But friends, that opportunity doesn't last forever. And when the Lord returns to assume the role of judge that will be his by by right, his judgment will come and it's going to be strict and it's going to be inescapable. How much better is it that you might bow your knee now to that Lord during this time in which it is not about judging, but only about saving than to wait. And as scripture says, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord and to do it in that day will not be the day in which you receive his mercy. I like to say there's no such thing as an unbeliever. There are only not yet believers. And whether you come to faith now or whether you recognize the truth in the day of judgment, sooner or later, everyone knows the truth. How much better will it be to come to that understanding now rather than waiting? Pray with me as we finish. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, that you gave me the strength in my voice to finish the teaching. And I thank you, Father, that you brought many men and women here tonight who came because they respect and desire the word of God to be taught properly. And I do pray, Father, that that is what they received, that what was spoken tonight, though they were words I put together, Father, I pray that they would come from the Holy Spirit, and that they were inspired to be the truth that you wanted delivered. And though some of the things I've said, Father, may not be true, for men will err from time to time. I know, Father, that in their hearts you can take any error and replace it with the truth. For you are much greater. And you are much more powerful. And you will see through it that your truth reigns. And I thank you for that, Father. For any who may have heard this, Father, and in their heart they were pierced through by the word. And they have recognized that they have been living a life of disobedience. And that they have, at least to this point, refused to accept the gift of mercy. I pray, Father, that what they've heard tonight may change that attitude and that by your spirit you may be even now convicting them and calling them to repent and to accept the gift of mercy that you offer in grace. May they reach out. May they speak to someone if that is the case. May you show them someone who can disciple them. And for all of us, Father, who know you and are here because we do love you and your grace and we do want to know you better. I pray that you would give us confidence to walk out from this place knowing that we are not judged. And why, therefore, should we judge ourselves and others who may wish to do the same, tearing us down and causing us, Father, to think less of who we are in Christ? Not to be prideful, not to be self-satisfied, not to make excuse for sin, for you told us, go and sin no more. But yet still, Father, to be bold and to be confident, to know that because we operate in grace, we have no reason not to step out, not to serve, not to be a man or woman who can speak the truth. Give us opportunities for that as well. I thank you for this church, Father, for the work it's doing, for its leadership and Brian and others in this church. And I ask, Father, that you would grow it and give it greater opportunity to serve in Monument so that it would glorify your name here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.